Hello, and welcome to the 2021 Green Street Lecture Series, the Bar of Ireland's contribution in seeking to build an understanding of how national figures have both been shaped by and shaped the law in Ireland. This new series follows our 2016 lectures and portrays the intersection between law, politics and literature, and by extension, detailing some of the notable characters, culture and controversies that define the Irish state throughout the years. Revisiting landmark cases and their lasting impact, the lectures are presented by preeminent barristers passionate about their respective themes and delivered from the Honourable Society of King's Inns. In this third lecture, John O'Donnell, Senior Counsel, will address the trial and error of Patrick Kavanagh, introduced by Elizabeth Gill, BL. Good afternoon and welcome to the second instalment of the 2021 Green Street Lecture Series brought to you today by the Bar of Ireland and being delivered in the benches room of the Honourable Society of the King's Inns. And I'd like to thank once again the King's Inns for the use today of this wonderful space. We're very fortunate this afternoon to be hearing from John O'Donnell, Senior Counsel, and the title of his lecture is You Have No Merit, No Merit at All, The Trial and Error of Patrick Havana. So without further ado, I'll pass over to John to begin the lecture. Thank you. Born in the parish of Inishkeen, Monaghan, in 1904, Patrick Kavanagh had come to Dublin in 1939, the year after what he called the Munich bother, to try to make a living as a writer. Although from a farming background, Kavanagh sold the family holding in Monaghan, his brother chided him that Kavanagh made more money by writing about the land than he did by farming it. Earning a living as a writer is daunting at any time. In the Dublin of 1940s and 1950s, it was next to impossible. Kavanagh observed that poetry is a luxury trade. A man has no business adventuring into it unless he has buckets of money. Interestingly, long before his infamous libel action, Kavanagh had noted that in its truest manifestation, Poetry gives judgments. It would be interesting to see what would happen to a high court judge if he were forced to do the job only for love and being forced into pubs for relief. There were many shortages in wartime and post-war Dublin, but jealousy and petty snobbery were always in plentiful supply. Kavanagh's talent and vehement resistance to the Celtic Twilight School of Literature did not endear him to certain other writers. The big, raw-boned, uncouth countryman striding the Dublin streets drew sneers from city slickers. On observing a man driving a manure cart, the editor of Dublin magazine said acidly, I see Paddy Kavanagh is moving house. Nonetheless, by the early 1950s, Kavanagh was a well-known Irish literary figure having produced critically acclaimed, if controversial, work such as The Green Fool and Tarry Flynn. In addition, his long poem The Great Hunger had offended many in its explicit depiction of the loneliness, depression and sexual frustration of the small farmer. A plethora of literary magazines were circulating in Ireland during this time. One of these was a small weekly magazine, The Leader, 
In October 1952, the leader published a profile of Patrick Kavanagh, the latest in their series of features on well-known Irish figures. The piece painted a colourful and distinctly uncomplimentary picture of Kavanagh hunkering on a bar stool in McDade's of a morning, surrounded by acolytes and firing a malevolent insult at the barman before lowering a bowl of malt in one gulp. In a voice the profile says is reminiscent of a load of gravel sliding down the side of a quarry, Kavanagh booms out, Yous have no merit, no merit at all, to his admirers, who include sylph-like redheads, dewy-eyed brunettes, hard-faced intellectual blondes, three rangy university poets, and several semi-bearded painters. He then leaves for a lunch in the Bailey, which is followed by a visit to the boogies. The piece included a pungent attack on Kavanagh's Weekly. Kavanagh's Weekly was an ill-fated broadsheet. It folded in July 1952 after 13 issues, which had been run by Kavanagh and his brother Peter, who between them wrote everything in it, including the so-called letters to the editor. Kavanagh's Weekly spared no one from its razor tongue. The Arts Council, the Abbey, De Valera and Fianna Foyle, the Defence Forces, the Irish Times, Radio Erin, the Department of Now Foreign Affairs. As a vocal and uncompromising critic of the new nation-state, Kavanagh's Weekly was anathema in many respects to the unashamedly Catholic and nationalist leader which had been in existence since 1900. And to some extent, this profile of Kavanagh was the leader's revenge. Wasn't this just another literary spat? Kavanagh didn't think so. In London, when he first became aware of the piece, he was incensed. On his return to Dublin, he decided to sue. Why? Money, certainly. His early reaction to what he called this nasty libel was that there may be money in it. He was further buoyed up after a visit to his solicitors. The view is I cannot lose the action. I am confident of getting anything from £500 upwards, he said in a letter to his brother. I don't think they'll let it go to court. £500, incidentally, in new money is about €16,300. The leader may not have been much of a financial mark, but his legal team had also joined Argus Press, the printers of the leader, though Eason's as distributors, though initially named, were not pursued and did not participate in the trial. His friend, the late Anthony Cronin, observed, Kavanagh, being a literary man, dreamed of libel. Kavanagh already had some familiarity with the legal process. His father, a farmer and a cobbler, had occasionally advised locals in Inishkeen as to how they might make their wills, apparently using Pear's Encyclopedia as a guide. Kavanagh had also sued the B&I steam packet in 1940 as a result of being knocked off his bicycle near Butt Bridge 
by one of the company's horse-drawn lorries and had received £35 three shillings in compensation, mainly for damage to his bike and his clothes and for loss of earnings. Notably, in 1939, Kavanagh and his publishers had been sued in the English courts for libel by the Irish surgeon Oliver St. John Gogarty, father of our late colleague Nal Gogarty, because of a reference in Kavanagh's semi-autobiographical novel The Green Fool. The book describes a visit by Kavanagh to Gogarty's house in Eli Place in Dublin, where he was greeted by a woman in white. I mistook Gogarty's white-robed maid for his wife or a mistress, wrote Kavanagh, who continued enigmatically, I expected every poet to have a spare wife. Gogarty claimed this suggested that Gogarty was flaunting immorality at his professional address. Although the publishers claimed that offensiveness and bad taste did not make a statement defamatory, the jury awarded Gogarty £100 and costs, which were estimated at £300. Kavanagh did not personally have to pay, although the publishers withdrew the book from circulation, which surely hurt. A shopkeeper who refused to stock the green fool, saying that he could not be made to do so by law, was told by Kavanagh, the only law that matters is the law of the poet. Gogarty and Kavanagh were not the only Irish literary figures who had become embroiled in libel suits. In 1937, Samuel Beckett had given evidence on behalf of a Harry Sinclair, a Dublin antiques dealer. Sinclair sued Gogarty over a disparaging reference in his book As I Was Going Down Sackville Street, which suggested Sinclair was more interested in new mistresses than old masters. Beckett swore an affidavit supporting an application to injunct further publication of the book on the grounds that the publication was clearly libelous. The injunction was granted and upheld on appeal. Beckett's name appears in the Irish reports where the case is reported at the 1937 IR 377. At the subsequent trial, Sinclair won, but not before Beckett was ridiculed in front of the jury. Beckett was unable to resist the temptation to correct defending counsel John Mary Fitzgerald Casey's deliberate mispronunciation of the name Marcel Proust. Beckett's humiliation, the judge also suggested he would not place any great faith in the evidence of the witness Beckett, must have hardened his resolve to make his temporary exile in Paris permanent. The case was not without risk. Sinclair was Jewish and there was still a whiff of anti-Semitism in the Dublin air. But Sinclair was awarded £900, a sizeable sum, together with the costs. So it is hard to avoid the conclusion that Gogarty and Sinclair's lawsuits persuaded Kavanagh that a libel action was easy money especially as he had little or no money of his own. His finances were chaotic. 
Kavanagh had had a very small, if reasonably steady, income as a film critic of the Catholic standard during the 1940s. In this capacity, he wittily made clear his loathing for most foreign films, panning movies such as National Velvet, Going My Way, and It's a Wonderful Life. However, his editor finally lost patience when Kavanagh admitted, after complaints by a cinema manager, that he frequently only stayed for 10 minutes of the film and sometimes didn't see the film at all. When in dire straits, Kavanagh was not above asking for help. Remarkably, one source of continuing financial support was Archbishop John Charles McQuaid, with whom Kavanagh had a friendship. Kavanagh also wrote occasional pieces for the Irish Times, Irish Press and Irish Independent, but in 1945 he earned £13 in total according to his accounts, although Cronin suggested that there may at times have been an element of concealment about these declared figures. It's hard to quarrel with Kavanagh's waspish assessment of Dublin as a place where they thought so much of the poetry that they didn't believe in the poet eating. But it is unfair to assume that this claim was only for the money. Kavanagh viewed himself with considerable justification primarily as a poet and from the 1940s on as the Irish poet. Kavanagh was an uneasy, awkward presence, very far from Yeats's smiling public man. But he was anxious that what he regarded as the sacred space occupied by the poet in Ireland, being apart from, while also a part of, the community, should be protected rather than disparaged or neglected financially or critically. Whether the Four Courts is the appropriate location for debating such an issue is questionable, but it was certainly a high-stakes and potentially lethal forum. Like many clients before and since, Kavanagh, at the outset, was utterly convinced as to the rightness of his case. Any attempt to dissuade him from suing was seen as disloyalty. He was particularly exercised by the fact that the article was anonymous. Only the pen of some man who had been down in hell could have written it, he claimed. Kavanagh's suspects included Brendan Behan and the poet and diplomat Valentin Ironmonger. The identity of the writer was never revealed, most believe it to have been Ironmonger, but the anonymity of the author made one of Kavanagh's demands for an apology, more complicated. The legal teams of each of the protagonists are a study in themselves. Lead counsel for Kavanagh was Sir John Esmond SC, a former MP and TD, and a former member of the British Army who had fought in World War I and in 1916. Also on Kavanagh's team, was Tommy Connolly SC, a brilliant and colourful advocate, Tommy Doyle SC, later a High Court judge, who had given the initial advice that the article was actionable, 
and a junior counsel named Niall McCarthy, later a judge of the Supreme Court. Their instructing solicitor was Rory O'Connor of James J. O'Connor and Sons. The leader's team was just as distinguished. James McMahon SC, later a High Court judge and father of our colleague Michael. Bill Finley, barrister at law, uncle of Mary and John, and later governor of the Bank of Ireland. With lead counsel for the leader being John A. Costello SC, father of Declan and grandfather of Caroline, who had until recently been Taoiseach and would again, and who was TD for what is now Dublin Bay South, Kavanagh's own constituency. They were instructed by McCann, White and Fitzgerald. For the Argus were William O'Brien Fitzgerald SC, later Chief Justice, father of Jack and grandfather of William, Brian Walsh SC, later a Supreme Court judge, and a junior named Fergus Flood, named later a High Court judge and chair of the Flood Tribunal, instructed by Brannigan and Matthews of Drogheda. It is also worth remembering that the trial judge was Mr Justice Thomas Teven, a former Attorney General who had been appointed by the Fianna Fáil government to the High Court the day before the trial started. This was his first ever case. There do not appear to have been any settlement negotiations. No offers of settlement was made, were made in correspondence. The leaders request that Kavanagh identify exactly what parts of the article were libelous were met with the issuing of the writ. The leader was not cash rich. It had a dwindling circulation, although it did have a number of advertisements which suggested some form of income. But it was unwilling to negotiate. The Argus claimed later it was broke, though it might have suited them to say so. Kavanagh became increasingly nervous about the case as the trial date neared. His brother contended that at one stage, Patrick would have accepted nominal damages and an apology. In keeping with his lawyer's advice, Kavanagh appeared at the forecourts in a borrowed dark Burberry coat, a dark hat, and holding a briefcase, his hair brushed forward, according to one newspaper, into a Napoleonic forelock. The legal team were anxious to present their client as a serious man following a serious profession. He leads a quiet life, early to bed, early to rise, according to Sir John Esmond's opening, which opening also criticised the cowardly nature of the anonymous article. Tommy Connolly then led Kavanagh through his evidence-in-chief, in which Kavanagh complained that the article presented him as a clown and a buffoon, and that it had deprived him of getting work. He concluded his evidence-in-chief by saying that literature is not the activity of wild bohemians, but is part of the religious mind, in fact, part of religion. However, the dramatic high point of the case was to be 
the cross-examination of Kavanagh by John A. Costello. Costello started by asking Kavanagh about certain of the words in the offending article, words Kavanagh had used in his own writings, such as gurrier and book leper. He also pointed out that the article had included a flattering reference to Kavanagh's long poem, The Great Hunger. The best poem written in Ireland, the article said, since Goldsmith's The Deserted Village. We say you are the greatest living poet, said Costello. That doesn't butter much parsnips, was Kavanagh's reply. There were several moments during the cross-examination when the courtroom rocked with laughter. Asked if parts of the great hunger had been suppressed for indecency, Kavanagh answered, practically all the obscene bits are still in. When asked if the police had called to see him about the poem, Kavanagh said, they asked me my views. We had a talk about Chaucer. They didn't know much about him. There were echoes of Oscar Wilde's libel hearing, the witty, sometimes too witty, writer being pursued by the dogged and determined counsel. Costello protested his own ignorance. You are cleverer than me, he said. I am not a poet. I am only a working barrister. And Costello was not above joking himself. When Kavanagh said that pieces in Kavanagh's weekly were sometimes twisted to the Fine Gael side, Costello mock complained, oh, you didn't twist it to my side. You did not say anything about me. Perhaps it was no surprise that there were hour and a half long queues to get a seat in the public gallery of the courtroom. One theatre manager observed enviously, it was a good job the courts didn't sit in the evenings. Otherwise, he said, the theatres might as well close down. The presence of a large number of fabulously dressed women and girls who thronged to the hearing was noted by the Evening Herald. An Irishman's diary speculated that perhaps it was merely feminine curiosity that brought so many of them, before adding approvingly that if this was why so many women attended, they didn't neglect their decorative instincts. Gradually, Costello's cross-examination began to make an impact. Other magazines, such as The Bell, had included features on Kavanagh, which were not entirely flattering. Why, Costello wondered, had he not sued them? Costello also highlighted the stinging criticisms Kavanagh had written, not just about various Irish institutions, but also about other poets, such as F.R. Higgins and Austin Clarke. These lines of questioning were carefully designed to plant the seed in the minds of the jury that Kavanagh could dish it out, but he couldn't take it. Kavanagh protested. His criticisms had been of the writing, not the writers. I am not worried about what anyone says about my works, he emphasised. He also rejected what he called the left-handed compliments contained in the article. Nothing is complimentary, he says, that takes away a man's dinner. Kavanagh complained that the article had deterred media outlets such as RTE Radio Aaron from employing him. However, Costello established 
that he had actually been engaged by RTE even after the piece had been published. As for the rather pious suggestion that Kavanagh had led a quiet life, Costello took Kavanagh on a virtual pub crawl of the many pubs Kavanagh had drunk in and written about. McDade's, The Palace, The Pearl, amongst others. Though in fairness, Kavanagh's complaint about this aspect of the piece was that it portrayed him as a sponger. As so often happens in litigation, the case took a sudden turn almost out of nowhere. In answer to the suggestion that Brendan Behan, who was mentioned in the article, was a friend of his, Kavanagh was incensed. It is a rotten lie that such a person is a friend of mine, he declaimed. Kavanagh's relationship with Behan was complex. Behan called him the Monaghan Bogman and other even less complimentary names. But he painted or distempered. You're flat, said Costello. Kavanagh continued to reject outright any suggestion of a friendship with Behan, referring to him as a low blackguard. It was unclear why Behan's name was introduced into the cross-examination. Perhaps the defence felt that if the jury associated Kavanagh with a man who had served time for IRA activities, they may have thought the less of him. But Kavanagh's denial of any connection with Behan was unnecessary, and as it transpired, unwise. The following day, the fifth day of the trial, and Kavanagh's fourth day in the witness box, Costello produced a copy of Kavanagh's Tarry Flynn, inscribed and dedicated in the author's handwriting to Behan. For my friend Brendan, poet and painter, on the day he decorated my flat, Sunday the 12th, 1950. There is no doubt that this significantly damaged Kavanagh's credibility. If there had been laughter in court on earlier occasions, this moment was greeted with one of those sharp silences one hears when a witness has been caught out. The handing over of the book to the defence was an act of treachery. Behan later denied it was him. Perhaps it showed how bitter the antagonism was towards Kavanagh in some quarters, no matter how high or low the stakes might have seemed. Kavanagh was already struggling physically under the strain. His brother sent him notes during the trial to try to calm him down. Relax, one such note said. At one stage, Kavanagh was so stressed that his testimony was halted to allow him to be examined by a doctor. When Costello's cross-examination concluded, Kavanagh was briefly cross-examined by Billy Fitzgerald, counsel for the printers, who asked him if he wanted printers to act as censors and suggested that Argus had only been joined so that he could plunge his hand into their pocket. Kavanagh was wilting now, in a low voice, head occasionally in his hands, he agreed. He was, of course, perfectly entitled to sue them, if the article was libelous. 
The defence did not go into evidence, apart from a brief formal witness from the Department of Justice to confirm that the censorship board had never actually formally banned the Great Hunger, Kavanagh was the only witness in the case. He had been in the box for 13 hours. On the sixth and final day, McMahon, Connolly and Fitzgerald made speeches to the jury. Judge Teven then delivered his charge. His interventions during the trial suggested that the judge, a Cavan man, was not unsympathetic to Kavanagh and that he fully appreciated the distinction between attacking the work and attacking the person. Teven did, however, point out that Kavanagh's lack of candour in respect of Behan and on some other issues, and he also suggested that this might lessen the jury's concern for him if they came to estimate damages. The first question on the issue paper was whether the article as a whole was defamatory of the plaintiff. Teven directed the jury that if they answered this question no, they could ignore the rest of the questions. Teven also told the jury that the innuendos pleaded as arising from the article, i.e. that Kavanaugh was a sponger, shallow, unjustifiably abusive and malicious towards RTE were not all that important. The judge's charge took just over two hours. The jury were initially sent out at 5.10. They were then recalled for requisitions before being sent out again at 6.14. At 6.45, the jury came back with a verdict. They had concluded that the article was not, as a whole, defamatory, and having answered that question, the jury had, as instructed by the trial judge, declined to consider any of the remaining issues on the issue paper. Kavanagh had lost. When news reached Kavanagh in the Four Courts Hotel, which is now Arasi Dolly, to where he had adjourned before the speeches and charge, he was initially distraught. Patrick's brother, Peter, had always been dubious that a jury of what he called upper-lower-class Dublin shopkeepers would find for Kavanagh. The jury's verdict had serious consequences for Patrick. Apart from the order against him for six days of High Court costs, which was stayed pending the appeal, there was also the ignominy of losing. However, as the night wore on, Kavanagh's supporters began to see the comic side. While the case had been a failure as a money-raising exercise, as a form of literary martyrdom, it had been, up to a point anyway, as Cronin noted, a success. Kavanagh was now as famous as de Valera, as Patrick himself said. And, as Brendan Behan had once previously observed, there's no such thing as bad publicity except your own obituary. Maybe bringing the action had been a disastrous mistake, but Kavanagh had soon sufficiently recovered to refer to the case laughingly as the trial and error. By the summer of 1954, 
Kavanagh was so poor he had pawned his raincoat, but he was still able to participate in a glorious pilgrimage by horse-drawn cab to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Bloomsday in the company of Flann O'Brien, Anthony Cronin and John Ryan, which odyssey ended, unsurprisingly, between Davy Burns and the Bailey. In the meantime, Kavanagh's legal team advised that there were solid legal grounds for an appeal. The notice of appeal included as one of the grounds the assertion that the jury's verdict was unreasonable. On hearing this, one juror wrote to Patrick to express his outrage at such a slur. But money would be needed, if only to take up five copies of six days' transcripts for the Supreme Court. A Kavanaugh Appeal Fund Committee was established. Letters were sent to the great and the not-so-great. And some money did come in, from T.S. Eliot, 20 guineas, and John Betjeman, 10 pounds, among others. The painter Jack B. Yeats contributed. One of Patrick's bookies even made a donation. While his solicitor sought a payment on account of £600 for the lawyers, Kavanagh had nothing like this kind of money, and the appeal went ahead largely on the hazard, as far as the lawyers were concerned, in November of 1954, and ran for seven days before a five-man Supreme Court who reserved judgment. But by the end of 1954, Kavanagh had other things to think about. A persistent shoulder pain was eventually diagnosed as lung cancer. He was admitted to the Rialto Hospital for surgery in 1955. Kavanagh was understandably apprehensive. The night before the operation, he drew up a homemade will which he had witnessed in Searson's pub by a barman and a policeman. The surgery necessitated the removal of his left lung and a rib which the surgeon allowed Kavanagh to keep and which was then placed on the mantelpiece in the Kavanagh flat in Pembroke Road as a macabre souvenir. In March 1955, the Supreme Court delivered judgment. By a 3-2 majority, the verdict was set aside and the case sent back for a retrial. The majority held that the charge by the trial judge, and in particular the direction about the innuendos, had been confusing. Judge Kingsmill Moore felt the article would have conveyed to most readers that Kavanagh was something of a poseur, unsubtle, opinionated and overbearing. Kingsmill Moore said he found it hard to see how anyone could not conclude Kavanagh had been held up to at least mild ridicule and perhaps gentle contempt. The subtext is that there had been a libel, but that the damages should perhaps be modest. Settlement negotiations then began in earnest. The case was relisted for hearing in May of 1955 but Sir John Esmond informed the court 
the case had settled and could be struck out with no order. The terms were never disclosed, but it seems clear there was an all-in payment. Of particular interest is an unsent letter from Kavanagh to his solicitor Rory O'Connor in March of 1955, after the Supreme Court judgment had been delivered. I am grateful to Evelyn Flanagan, head of UCD Library Special Collections, which includes the Kavanagh Archive, and to Jonathan Williams on behalf of the trustees of the Kavanagh Estate for permission to use this letter. The letter is also referred to in Pat Walsh's fine book on Kavanagh's libel action, published by Mercier Press. The letter is just one page long, handwritten, and written from Kavanagh's hospital bed. Although the letter was for some reason never posted, it eloquently states what Kavanagh thinks he should get out of whatever monies are on offer, as well as cleverly evoking a degree of sympathy. Dear Rory, further to our conversation of last night. As you know, I won't tie your hands, but thinking over the matter, it strikes me that the costs and the suggested damages are very lopsided. I am writing this while waiting for my operation in an hour's time. I feel that the equity of it would be more apparent if those council's fees were to be paired a bit to add to my lump. In view of everything, I should get £500. However, I'll probably be able to see you before the final decision. All the best, Patrick Kavanagh. The letter ends with a touching coda, expressing a sentiment familiar to clients and their lawyers who have been through lengthy and bruising litigation. You'll appreciate that my attitude is a fair one, but I know you'll do your best, all to be able to say, thank God it's over. But other funds were to come from a perhaps surprising source. Two months after the original trial, the government collapsed and John A. Costello was once again elected Taoiseach. During the election, Costello met Kavanagh outside a polling station. I hope you have no grudge against me, said Costello, shaking hands with his former adversary. On the contrary, I've just voted for you, said Kavanagh. A good Fine Gael man, Kavanagh was not one to let an opportunity go by. Correspondence ensued. Kavanagh wrote repeatedly to Costello, asking him to fix him up with some kind of paying job, though not necessarily work. Costello spoke to the president of UCD, Michael Tierney, and Tierney arranged for Kavanagh to be appointed as lecturer in poetry at a salary of £400 a year. There was at least one lecture given. Whether more were delivered, history does not record. Costello visited Kavanagh during his illness, as did Archbishop McQuaid. Remarkably, McQuaid offered to give evidence on behalf of Kavanagh in court at the retrial if Kavanagh wanted him to do so. Kavanagh lived a further 12 years. 
He wrote many of his greatest poems as he convalesced on the banks of the canal. The first line of one of the most famous of these poems, lines written on a seat on the Grand Canal, Dublin, is, Oh, commemorate me where there is water. This may seem ironic from a poet who spent so much time in pubs. His health remained poor. Despite what appears to have been an acceptable settlement, some still suggested he never recovered from the trauma of the hearing. He married Catherine Maloney in April 1967 at the Church of the Three Patrons in Rathgar. Patrick McEntee, SC, was a wedding guest and can be seen behind the bride and groom in one photograph of the celebrations. Patrick Kavanagh died in November 1967, aged 63. His contribution to Irish literature is for others to speak on, but it is undoubtedly significant. He ploughed a furrow that others followed. As for the importance of the case legally and socially, the legacy of Patrick Kavanagh's libel action against the leader is a reminder of the need for caution before issuing proceedings, the entrenched nature of Dublin's urban-rural divide, the savagery and small-mindedness of some of Ireland's literary wars, the capacity of juries to sometimes get it wrong and the Supreme Court to sometimes get it right, the private kindnesses of certain public figures, the benefits of the no-fole, no-fee tradition, and the Irish public's ceaseless fascination with defamation actions. I made the Iliad from such a local row. Gods make their own importance. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this lecture of the 2021 Green Street Lecture Series. Until the next time, stay safe.